0: All right, welcome back to Lindroth Hockey Podcast. We are in productions with the Black and Gold Hockey Productions, LLC. We're here with father and son co-hosts, Andrew and Jim Lindroth. Dad, how are you doing today? Doing great, Andrew. We've got a very, very
1: special guest. Uh, We've never had an NHL uh, head referee. We've had some AHL, ECHL guys, but no one from the NHL. And this guy's been doing it for a long time, uh, a wealth of knowledge. So uh, I don't want to spoil your thunder, Andrew. Give us the intro.
0: Yeah, so today we're excited to have with us today uh, Dave Jackson. So Dave started as a minor hockey referee at age 14 in the West Island Hockey Association in the western suburbs of Montreal and worked through various minor league circuits during that time. Later, he made his big step when signing a deal with the QMJHL, and from there his career began to absolutely flourish. Dave eventually reached his ultimate goal of getting the call to the NHL as an official and never looked back. He went on to officiate 1,546 regular season games, becoming just the sixth NHL referee to do so. He also tacked on 83 NHL playoff games, along with two All-Star games, a stadium outdoor game, and the 2014 Sochi Winter Olympics before retiring in 2018. Now you might recognize Dave as the new rules analyst for ESPN on their broadcast team for the 2021 and 2022 season. So I know that was a lot of uh, words in my mouth at once, but Dave, we're so excited to have you today, man. So Dave Jackson, how you doing, man?
2: I'm doing great, and Glad to be here, and thanks for having me. And that intro—it took you a long time. It didn't didn't even seem my career lasted that long. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we just yeah, talking like about I just you know, I kept listening, going, "Wow, wow!" It just seems like it all went by in a flash. You know, I was there. Yeah. Uh, I started with the NHL in '86 as a—they called it a trainee—and I wasn't under contract, but I was employed by the NHL, and I would go to NHL training camp. They'd pay for all my travel, so I was there from '86 till 2018. Wow. And then, uh, two more years after that, I supervised for them, uh, in their development programs. So yeah, like 34 years and it just went by like it was yesterday.
0: Wow. wow. So Dave, let's start from the beginning of your story. Then, as I mentioned, you began working as a minor hockey ref starting at the age of 14, as yeah. a young man, what sparked your interest trying to become a ref at the time?
2: Well, I was an avid hockey player and my goal was to play for the, you know, Montreal Canadians, like every kid that grows up in Montreal. Uh, and I was a decent hockey player. Um, played travel hockey and I just hated getting up early to have a paper route and my buddy was refereeing and said hey why don't you try refereeing and so I never gave up on my dream of playing but you know I'm 57 years old so back in the day even when you played top tier hockey in your region you were not on the ice seven days a week the way kids are now we uh, we would have you know two practices two games a week we'd be on the ice four days a week still left three days a week to do something else and that's why I took up refereeing just to make some extra money and Stay on the ice. So do you, re- do you remember your point. first game? <laughs> My first yeah. game refereeing? Yeah. I absolutely do. I was, uh, I was scared stiff. Uh, I was out there with another guy. It was his first game refereeing as well. We were doing a squirts, I think. It was a two-man system. And there were times where we literally we were both on the same side of the ice in the same end zone, standing beside each other going, this isn't right, but we're not really sure where <laughs> we should be. Uh I had on blue corduroy uh blue corduroy pants and my partner had on a yellow cooper helmet it was uh yeah it wasn't really wasn't big time and uh but you know my second game i was exponentially better and i just kept getting better after that
0: so you had almost nearly quit your newfound skill and profession after i believe it was what after one game you were nearly or you were physically assaulted by some parents yeah. What made you stay the course and say, okay, this is worth it? Because after that, I'd probably be like, man, this is – I'm done. Especially at, what,
2: 18, 19? Sure. Well, yeah, I'd been refereeing minor hockey just in my city, which basically it was house league hockey I was refereeing. And then uh, obviously when I finished playing um, – I finished playing competitive hockey. I never got drafted. Uh, I was talked in by a man named Doug Hayward, who was kind of my mentor. He's been a mentor for at least a dozen NHL officials from Quebec – and uh, he put me into full time travel hockey, and I said, Wow, this is great, it's a lot of fun. I'm making more money doing it, good caliber hockey. But I was only 17, and uh, one night I did a game, didn't go that well. And the hometown fans were waiting for us outside the rink, there had to been about 15 20 of them, and they started hurling insults. Which we just well, we're outnumbered, and I'm 17 years old, and believe me, I didn't have a smart mouth back then, so I just put my head down and kept walking, <laughs> and uh. One of the guys just wouldn't have it. he basically jumped me, sucker punched me a few times. Uh, one of the guys I was with, it was an older guy, a little bigger. He jumped in, um, you know, the third guy ran and got the car and we, we got out of there. But I mean, I was, uh, I'd been punched in the head a couple times. Uh, my equipment was knocked down and got in the car and we, we sort of drove home. And I said, at that point, I really hadn't uh, really thought big time about going to nhl this was just something i was doing i was going to college at the time and i was saying to myself why why am i doing this for 25 30 bucks a night uh so i quit uh we were going to file the police report and i called doug hayward and said i'm done uh this just isn't worth it and he totally understood and he said i think you should take a couple of days off give you as much time as you want but i'm going to call you in a week and maybe you can reconsider and uh sure enough he did he called me four or five days later and said, you know, uh, if you still want to stay retired, go right ahead. But he says, you're retiring before you've even reached your potential, and you should really reconsider it. So I did, and, you know, cliche, the rest is history.
1: Wow. So, Dave, you, you finally make it, and uh, you're working games in the queue. And uh, for our listeners who might not know, that's the uh, Quebec Major, Major League, uh, a pretty rough-and-tumble junior league back then. What were your experiences uh, like doing the queue?
2: It's kind of funny because I was a linesman initially in the queue when I was uh, 18, 19, and 20. And, uh, you know, being a linesman in the queue when you're 18, 19, and 20, you don't get a whole ton of respect from the players. You're the, basically the same age as, as the guys. And uh, I went to a referee school, Ron Fournier's referee school, in the summer of, um, summer of 86. And Brian Lewis was there, the former referee and chief of the NHL, and he was director of development at the time. And he invited me to NHL training camp. I went. I was successful. He made me a, what they call NHL trainee. And that meant they had an arrangement with all three junior leagues in Canada, the Western League, Ontario, and Quebec. And they would uh, parachute their own guys, which I was one of their guys now. I was an NHL trainee. They'd parachute you into these leagues. So you'd constantly change leagues in a Velcro patch on your shirt. You just kept pulling off the, the crest, putting on a new crest. And the Quebec league wouldn't use me as a referee. They said I was, I was too young. I was, I was 21 years old. So Brian Lewis said, well, we're gonna use him as a trainee he's gonna come through your league. And the commissioner said, that's fine. He goes, but you're responsible for him. I, I, I'm not responsible for him because he's an NHL trainee. So the transition was a lot easier because NHL trainees came in and back in the day in Quebec, they wore blue referees jerseys. They're blue and white, not black and white. I would come in and I had a black and white jersey And I had my name across the back and we didn't have to wear a helmet because we're part of the NHL staff. So all of a sudden these players that a year earlier had looked down on me, coaches looked down on me as a 20 year old linesman. Now all of a sudden I'm a 21 year old NHL referee, you know, from some probably other part of Canada. I had no idea who I was. So I think my transition to becoming a rookie referee in the queue was a lot easier than it is for guys who just take the traditional path up and, I had a pretty good year. My second year, I worked the Memorial Cup in Chicoutimi in 1988.
1: Okay. So I know that uh, with today's day and age, especially on the uh, USA hockey program, there's so many different levels of officiating, and it seems like it's almost endless just for those rec guys and, and uh, you know, whatever that program is. What was... Uh, what was it like with the NHL program? I know it's now defunct, but what was it like when you were running through it? And it seemed like you got a crash course with a lot of
2: experience, and it worked for you. It was, it was awesome. You really felt like you were part of the NHL staff, even though I wasn't even on a contract. I was making 100 bucks a game, being paid per game. Uh, but the NHL paid all my expenses, all my travel expenses. They flew me everywhere. Um, paid for all my equipment. I got new first pair of new skates I'd had in like six years because I couldn't afford to buy new skates. And uh, l- literally after my first uh, my first junior games, before I actually refereed in the queue, we in the Western Hockey League, which was a really rough and tumble league back in the day. And uh, that was my first experience in refereeing at the at the major junior hockey level. Did five games, and the five games went well, although. If you'd asked me how they went, I would have said, well, I lost control of all five games. <laughs> uh, but that was just typical of the day, the fighting and the, right. all that. I came home, and um, I had no more games assigned. I was waiting for a call. I guess we are going to see how it went. And I got a call saying, well, your next five games are going to be in the IHL. So I went from doing five junior hockey games to then doing pro hockey. And uh, my first pro hockey game, I had a full-scale five-on-five, six-on-six brawl. I guess it was, a seven, it was a seven on six brawl because we had both goalies fighting and we had one trainer fighting with one of the players. So, um, Trainers. it was, it was, I was way over my head out of my element, but it's baptism by fire. You learn really quickly. And, uh, the supervisor, uh, guy by the name of Sam Cisco from Windsor, Ontario, a great man came down after the game and I thought he was coming out and tell me, you know, this is your first and last game in this league, but he was quite, uh, He was quite reassuring. He goes, there's a couple of things you could have done different, but I really liked what I saw, and let's talk about it. And and that's how it worked back in the day. You're out there by yourself. I mean, nowadays, I don't want to say it's easier nowadays because there's still a lot of stress, a lot of pressure, but a young guy can come in and work with a, a more senior guy. And if things go south, you're hoping the senior guy steps up. Back then, you're by yourself. It's just you sink or swim. And you had to realize that, and you had to go, listen, if I don't step up here now, I might not get another chance to step up. So uh, it it went well, but there were there were many nights. There were many nights I'd go back to my hotel room and wonder if I was cut out to do this. And uh, even early on in my NHL career, I mean, I was doing NHL games at 24, 25 years old, and there were games that didn't go well. And you a lot of second guessing, a lot of doubts creep into your mind when, when you're out there by yourself.
0: Well, yeah. and so at what point in your career, I know – you know, right now you're not technically signed by the NHL, but you're in the training program working uh, some some other uh, junior games. At what point did you tell yourself, I can do this, you know what, I can have a healthy career and be an NHL official for years to
2: come? Was there a certain point where you – Oh, I think, I think right after I went to my first training camp, uh, okay. I was enrolled in college, and I said, you know, I can always go back to college. And I'm not going to get this chance again. And right. that's when I decided I'm going to make it because I walked away from too much to not make it. right? Uh, so I just, I just, you know, hammered through it. Just, you know, had a bad game and you have to have a, you have to have a really short memory okay. because if you don't have a short memory, the, the, the miss, go- you do a lot of good games and for every good game you do, those don't stick with you. Right. But the games where you have a major snafu or a bad call, miss call, those games stick with you. And if you let them pile up, They get into your head and then you're no good. So you just have to move on to the next game. But uh, I did that for three years. And after the third year, they called me and signed me to a full-time contract, which meant back then it was only 15 teams in the American Hockey League.
0: Right.
2: And uh, American Hockey League was refereed only by NHL contract guys. It didn't have its own staff of referees. had its own staff of linesmen, but the referees were exclusively NHL contract guys. And there was probably eight or nine of us. I was the youngest guy on the staff. We had Rob Schick, Paul Stewart, Mick Magoo, Paul Dvorsky. They were all in the American League as well at the time. And uh, I was the newest guy in. And in my second year on contract, I got my first NHL game. So, Dave,
1: uh, I want to talk real quick. Did uh, Well, let me just finish this. And then uh, we've got so many questions we want to ask as an official, but we also want to cover your long and great career. So um, let me ask this. Did your performance in the 88 Memorial Cup, do you think that helped you to sign the deal in 89 to to get a contract and start doing NHL in 90?
2: I, It's tough to say. Uh, Brian Lewis, who had hired me as a trainee, was at the entire Memorial Cup uh, for the entire week, Uh, saw me work. I was happy with how I worked. And then uh, the following year, I got a lot more – that my third year as a trainee, which happened after Memorial Cup, they stopped using me in junior. They uh, pretty much used me exclusively American Hockey League and some IHL. And uh, with a bunch of injuries, that, find that last year as my trainee in 88, 89, uh, I worked probably pretty much just American Hockey League. So I was like one of the contract guys working. And I got more comfortable. The teams see you more. They get more comfortable with you. And... Um, you know, and as one referee, like going back to what I said, as one referee, it was a lot easier for a supervisor to sort of see if you belonged. You can't hide when I mean, you're you can't defer to your partner. You're out there. You sink or swim. You either do a good job or you lose control and bowl the game. So I think uh, I think my performance in Memorial Cup helped me move forward into doing just just pro games the next year.
1: So you've already got the experience on, you know, uh, officiating games. Like you said, not juniors. Now you're doing AHL. You're doing the IHL. Uh, You know, these are grown men. These are uh, guys uh, making a living for families and so forth like that. But now you go to 90. uh, What was I think it was Quebec and uh, New Jersey is your first game. Correct. Uh, Bring bring us through. We like to talk to our our players that made it to the NHL. Uh, What was your first game like? Go through warm ups, go through. The game. What was your experience? Now we've got the head well, referee.
2: Yeah. So for about a month, I knew about a month in advance I was doing the game, and I shouldn't have told anybody, but I told a couple of my buddies. And before you knew it, it was just guys were planning, you know, renting a bus, come up to see my <laughs> game, and and I was putting all this <laughs> pressure on myself, you know, uh, my parents, um, uh, my my family was all going to be at the game. Um, so i just tried to put it, put it on my head i jumped in my car the night before drove out by myself and amazingly day of the game i wasn't the least bit nervous i was just this is going to be just another hockey game for me um get to the game uh, get dressed and I, i'm working with two veterans i'm working with uh, Ray capanello and ron auslstein you know they've got they've got at that time had well over 3000 games under underneath their belt and um Went on and did the game, or I went on and skidded on the ice, and uh, Peter Statsny had been the captain of the Nordiques. He'd been traded just earlier that year, and he was coming back now with New Jersey, and it was the first time he'd come back to the Colisee, and he was beloved by the fans in, in Quebec. So as I came down the Zamboni door hit the ice kind of running, so did Peter Statsny. We both hit the ice at the same time, and the crowd went nuts, like a standing ovation. so Tony McKegney was playing for Quebec at the time skates by me and he goes look at that kid they know it's your first game they're giving you a standing ovation so it kind of laughed and it was kind of funny and uh, still felt pretty good during the anthem and I go to center ice to drop the puck to open the pace off I look behind me and there's Guy Lafleur who was playing for the Nordiques at the time and I'd grown up I mean I'm a kid from Montreal grown up watching Guy Lafleur and that's when it hit me I went holy crap that's Guy Lafleur and I dropped the puck. He blew by me, his hair blowing in the wind. And for about the first, we had about three minutes with no whistles. And uh, I tell you, I was, I, was, I was shaking. It was, I can't believe I'm here. I'm not sure I belong here. Just don't screw up. And then I think the first whistle I called a penalty, I don't remember who was on, but I felt pretty good after that. And the game, Quebec won the game. Guy LeFleur scored a goal. And my referee-in-chief, Brian Lewis, who hired me, came down after the game, and he said, that's a great game, kid. Give me your jersey back because that's the last one you're doing this year. <laughs> he was joking. However, what it, however it was the last game I did that year. And uh and that wasn't because I didn't do a good job. It was it was more the fact that in my development I wasn't ready for a full slate of NHL games. So it was almost a carrot that he dangled in front of me, gave it to me, and I passed the test. And then my second year in the league, I did maybe nine or ten games, and my third year. On Contract, I did about 30 games and then I went full time in my fourth year on contract.
0: Awesome! So, uh, as an official, what routine did you have, if any at all, to stay in shape during the offseason? I mean, you guys are out there the full 60 minutes every time, so I mean, that's got to be pretty tiring.
2: Yeah, it's changed a ton. When I started, we didn't do a whole lot, we would, uh, you know, run a couple of miles in late August before camp and go, oh, I'm, I'm good to go, right? Um, as I got older and the league itself evolved, they started hiring trainers, they started having. Different uh, fitness standards, fitness tests. Uh, it, it became a year-round endeavor. You'd finish the season, take a you know couple weeks off, and then you'd be you'd be hard in the gym every day or five days a week all summer. Um, what people don't realize about officials in their training camp is that our camp is pretty much the same as an NHL players' camp. Now, the standards they expect us to meet are kind of age-based. A guy who's in his early fifties doesn't have to push the same kind of watts on a bike as a guy who's 25 however they need you to maintain they don't want you dropping your power sliding between one year and the next so i mean you go to camp you do the uh the wingate test on the bike you you used to do a cardio vo2 max test you do a shuttle run test uh leg power long jump push-ups sit-ups flexibility holding the plank i mean it's it's a pretty big uh pretty big test yeah if you're not in shape for it well, I wouldn't know what would happen because nobody has really shown up and not been in shape, but it's, it's pretty grueling. You guys get over that first day of uh, their fitness training, fitness test at camp. It's just big sigh of relief for everybody.
1: Sure. So we hear a lot of stories from uh, players finally making it to the NHL. Uh, it's their rookie season, or maybe they only go up for five games. doesn't matter. Uh, particularly, in, or in training camp, uh, you know, it's their first training camp. They get sort of hazed a little bit. They get you know, we've had everything from stuff we won't mention on air to, you know, uh, the vets sticking the rookie with a bill for like uh, $2,000 for lunch, you know, things like that. Yeah, um, yeah. what's it on the officiating side? We, we, did you, uh, have to go through any, uh, little, uh,
2: initiations with the officials? Not really. Uh, I think, I think it stems from the fact that everybody hates us to begin with. So <laughs> we're, we're very <laughs> insular. We're, yeah. We're very insular in that. Like we've got a, we've got a you know, we're going to support each other because nobody else likes us. Um, typically we would have a, well, nothing when I started per se, other than you had to buy the veterans beers and things when we'd go out. But starting in around early two thousands, we, uh, or in 2004, 2005, during a lockout season, we lost a linesman in a motorcycle accident, Stefan Provo in the off season. Uh, he was very good friend to a lot of guys, especially to the Quebec guys. We all, came up through the Quebec system together. And we um, started a poker tournament, Texas Hold'em poker tournament, with all the proceeds going to his children, trying to put an education fund together. And basically, the only hazing we have is that anyone new at training camp that year has to just make sure that there's no veteran without a beer in his hand or a drink in his hand during the poker night. It's yes, sir, no, sir. And kind of make them run errands or gophers. But uh, that's that's about his... That's about as bad as it gets.
1: So bring us behind the scenes. So, uh, you know, you guys uh, show up. How do you get to the rink? You don't have a bus. And uh, when you get to the rink, uh, I'm assuming that you have somebody that's going to take you guys where you guys need to be for your locker room and so forth. What's it like for the officials? I mean, do you get a, a nice limousine? Do you get a crappy little van? Do you guys have to rent a car or what?
2: Well, it's funny you should say that because my uh, my youngest son, Ryan, who's 27, uh, he was playing pro hockey up until this year. He was playing in the East Coast and the uh, Southern Professional League, just a cup of coffee and both and decided that uh, he was going to try officiating. And now he's working the American Hockey League. And he thought he'd really miss the structure and the camaraderie of being on a hockey team. And he said, he goes, you know, this is just as great a team as any other team I've ever been on. And... The great thing about it is the flexibility and freedom other than when that puck drops, you kind of on your own, you can choose to hang out with the other guys. You can choose to do your own thing. There's no, there's no morning skate. There's no being on time for your charter. We travel on our own. So you book your own plane tickets. Wow. If you're in a, you know, if you're in LA going to San Francisco, uh, San Jose, you might want to just rent a car. You have a day off, you take the Pacific coast highway up and you just, you do whatever you want. You decompress, whoever you want. Typically, though, if there's no locals, because everybody lives in, in some city where they're local, and they just drive to the game from home. But typically, if you've got four guys in a city where no one lives there, some guys will come in morning of the game. Some guys come in night before. But typically, you have a team lunch at 1230. Most guys will get up, have breakfast on their own time, hit the gym, do some light weights, some cardio. And then everybody meets for lunch at 1230. Talk a little bit about the game if it's if there's something that needs to be talked about, if there's something happened last game. Other games are routine. You talk about your families, back at the hotel. Most guys like to sleep for an hour or two. And uh, you try and get to the game about an hour and a half before the game. Now, a lot of times the rookie you talk about hazing, the rookie's always in charge of renting the the rental car or the SUV. <laughs> so typically there's the rookie has a big, you know, uh, four by four. It's four bags, four guys. He drives to the rink and back and you get there about an hour and a half before the game. Wow. And once you get there, you know, you don't have to worry about going on the ice for warm up. You've got the, you've got the full hour and a half to do what you want. I used to like to just gear down right away in my long johns, get a cup of coffee, talk to the guys. And then about an hour before the game, you get into your routine, you stretching calisthenics, some, you know, ups, stuff like that. Just get your muscles warm. And then it's just, you got a clock on the wall and you just, you got it down, you know, you got it down pat. You're tying your skates at the same time, every game. Look at the clock. You go, I'm a minute behind. I better hurry up tying the skates. And, and sure enough, with three minutes to go. I basically pull my Jersey on and zipper up and out you go.
0: So just as an NHL official, how did your guys' schedule get handed to you? Is it just like a month at a time? And then like you said, you got to kind of go through and book your own flights and do stuff or I mean, how long did they give you in advance?
2: It's typically a month in advance. Okay. And and when I say that, I mean, if you come out of training camp, you've got your October assignments. Midway through October, you get your November assignments right through. So, you know, it's a month to a month, month and a half, depending. As it gets closer to playoffs, uh, some games obviously are a lot more important than other games. And even as a rookie, you do a full slate of games, you're going to get tough games during the season. But the last two or three weeks, if there's a game with a, Of playoff implications, you're probably going to see a more veteran crew doing that game, but but for the most part, it's uh, the assigner looks at the games geographically, doesn't want to keep you on the road for too long. You know, typical road when I started, I was on road trips that were 20 days long, and that's counterproductive to your mental health. It really is now. Now, the road trips are anywhere from four to eight days, then you're home for four or five days, and then back out in the road. Uh, I always had. In my opinion, I always had pretty good schedules. When I lived on the East Coast, it's tougher. You come home from the West Coast, and you burn a whole day trying to get home. Uh, later in my career, and to this day, I, I live in Denver, which I should have done that from the start of my career because it's the easiest travel anywhere. You know, you're only losing you're only losing two hours going east, but it's direct flight. You're gaining an hour. I mean, you know, coming home, you're gaining two hours. So you. You leave at 7 in the morning, they come home, and you're still home by 9 in the morning. you got the whole day as you know, an off day. So uh, you ask other guys, they'll say, well, I think they close their eyes and throw darts at the map, and that's how they assign me. But there's a lot of work. That's not a job anybody wants. It's just you get snowstorms, especially with COVID. you got guys testing positive. They've got to make assignment changes. And uh, guys work hurt. Guys work hurt and injured because they know that if they bail, that means somebody that's home with their family for a precious day or two is going to get called and say, hey, we need you to go to St. Louis we Need you to go to New Jersey and they're taking them away from their family. So nobody wants to do that to somebody else. So you get guys that are sick and sometimes not feeling well and they're out there doing their job.
1: Yeah. Dave, from your career, a couple, two things I'd like to get some feedback from you. You officiated two all-star games and um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that has a lot of recognition as an official. I'm sure they just don't draw names out of a hat. And also, I'm curious to hear the story behind the Sochi 2014. By now, you're like, you know, the vet, most experienced rep. How did you get that call? And what was it like to be involved in the Sochi Winter Olympics?
2: Well, two good questions. Uh, The All-Star Games, I don't want to say they pick anybody. You have to to be a full-time referee for 10 years is sort of the criteria. So you have to be someone that's made an impression, been around, uh, experienced shown you can do the job. And then once you get 10 years of experience, you kind of just get in line until your, your turn comes up, uh, more senior guys get that opportunity first. And I did the, usually you do, usually you do one all-star game during your career, but in my case, in my final season, um, when I did my first game, my boys were six and four my daughter wasn't born. And my final season, my daughter was 14 years old. My boys were in their 20s. And uh, I'm not saying I requested it because you can't request All-Star Games. But I let it be known that it would be a nice way to sort of end my career. And uh, I really don't think there was anybody up for it that year. I, I got to work with Wes McCauley. And it's not about doing the All-Star Game for the prestige. of It's more for your family. Your, your family sacrifices so much. You're gone so much, you miss birthdays, you miss school plays. When you go to the all-star game, you, your kids basically have a carte blanche to go wherever they want. And they'd hang out near the players' dressing rooms They get autographs, uh, take pictures down on the ice. Um, in my first all-star game, before they tightened security a bit, both boys sat on the players bench during the skills competition, sat with the players, ate popcorn with them. They just felt like they were part of the whole atmosphere. And to look over and see your kids with a smile on their face, just, that, that makes it all worthwhile. I mean, as far as the game itself, it's to be on the ice with that many stars is very humbling. But let's face it, there's not a lot of refereeing needed. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of, I don't think I called the penalty in the two games I did. And, uh, but it's certainly an experience to where you know, the players are the show and we're just, we're just a necessary evil. But to share that ice with that many superstars is, is a lot of fun A very very humbling. So um,
0: although you just recently retired in 2018, what is the key difference you notice uh, between the officiating during your time, maybe back in the 80s and 90s compared to now, especially with how much the game has changed? Has it changed quite a bit for officiating as
2: well, I assume? Well, we call penalties now.
0: <laughs> no, yeah, hooking and stuff didn't exist back then, from what I saw.
2: <laughs> I mean, if you watch classic hockey, and I mean, for me being older, classic hockey, you know, I'm thinking of the the '70s. But classic hockey now is late '90s, early 2000s. Yeah, and I mean, guys are skating to the net without the puck, and these guys water skiing on them. Guys <laughs> with the puck have guys on their back, and if the guy doesn't go down or lose the puck, we we never used to call hooking or holding. I mean, it had to be it had to be an axe murder. Based on, you know, a guy, a guy would have to go down too. You would never call her. And the free guy could never get to the net. That all changed when we added the second referee. And now you're not guessing. Now you're not chasing the play. The play's coming at you. And that lockout really had a big impact. I mean, Brendan Shanahan put together that whole committee uh, with our boss, Stephen Walkham. And they said, why do we not allow to let our star players shine? why should we allow the lesser talented player to take away from the talented player? And I don't know if you guys, I mean, Andrew, you're, you're too young, but James, I'm sure you remember that first season when we came out from a lockout with 30 minor penalties a game. Yeah. We were calling everything, every hook, every hold, every, every trip. And everybody said, this isn't going to work. It's not going to work. They're just ruining the game. And to Steve Walkham's credit, he said, guys, stick with it. We're not ruining the game. The players will adjust. And look at the game we've got now. I mean, look at... Yeah, they did. Look at McKinnon, McDavid, Crosby, Ovechkin. I mean, God, these guys just fly. Guys are going to the net. They're three on two rushes. Nobody's hooking anybody. So that's the biggest difference. We we are encouraged to call a penalty if we see a penalty. And I know it's never going to change. A team loses a hockey game. It's fans cry. Conspiracy theory. The refs didn't want them to win. I mean... (laughs) The refs aren't accountable. They do what they want. It's, it couldn't be further from the truth. We, we are given, drummed into our head what the standard is and to support the standard, be true to the standard and if it's a penalty, call it. If it's a penalty in overtime and it's a penalty, call it and you will be supported. And that is the best I can say about how refereeing has changed. We are. I say we, I mean, I've, I'm not retired, but the officials are supported when they call the standard.
1: Uh, we didn't give you a chance to re- respond to the uh, Winter Olympics, Aaron. I'm really curious about your experiences there.
2: So she was pretty amazing. Unfortunately, there was some security concerns, uh, terrorism concerns. And I, I I know Team USA almost didn't go to the Olympics because of those concerns. Everything was... Everything was sort of assured and guaranteed, but the caveat was typically you can bring your wife with you for part of the Olympics or the whole Olympics, and you can get a uh, airplane ticket for her. Uh, she obviously stayed in your hotel room, but you get tickets to the events and stuff. In this case, that still applied, but we were taking a charter, meaning that if anybody wanted to come, it was a 17-day commitment. You know, We had young kids, uh, so I didn't get to bring my wife. But... It was amazing. Russia is not something I ever really thought I would visit. You hear Russia is so mysterious and mystique. Uh, The only downside is I wish I could have seen more of Russia. I wish I could have seen Moscow, St. Petersburg. The best way I can describe Sochi would be if someone from Russia said, I really want to go to the U.S. and they took a charter to Anaheim, went to Disneyland, (laughs) got back on the plane and went home. You don't really... You're not really seeing America. You're seeing Disneyland. And that's kind of how Sochi she was. It was beautiful. Palm trees, great weather. We were fortunate. We had a hotel inside the Olympic Village. So yes. we didn't have to go through security every morning. The journalists the journalists, and everybody else had to go through long security checklines every day to get into the Olympic Village. We just woke up and walked out our hotel room and went out there. Uh, beautiful rink. And... I didn't do a lot of games. I, I did three games, uh, the way things worked out. Uh, Stephen Walkham chose the best available, I believe that year that had not already previously done Olympics. And there so was 13 of us went. Uh, without having families there, it did make us all closer. We weren't doing day trips with the family. We just got together every night, talked hockey, and it was, it was like a modified training camp, but it was guys grew, grew pretty close. And uh, went and watched each other's games. Um, obviously, the gold medal game was amazing. The uh, Team USA against uh, Russia, where I believe Oshie scored a bunch of uh, shootout goals in the tie game. I mean, that was just, it was a lot of fun. We got to see a couple other events. It was such a, uh, you know, you go up to the skiing events, and it was, it was wintertime. And then you come down to the village, and it was, it was like a nice spring day in California. And Wow. It was, it was really neat, but we got to see a lot of events, figure skating, curling, skiing, ski jumping. It was just, it was just a lot of fun, but after 17, 18 days, there was time to go home. Yeah.
1: So uh, kind of uh, wrapping up your career, a couple, two big events that I I would like you to get some feedback on. And then uh, we've got a bunch of uh, 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 questions to ask you about officiating, if you don't mind, but to wrap up this part. You know, you're one of not many referees that made it for such a long career. Um, you had a special moment, I think, in your 1,000 game. I'd like you to talk a little bit about that and, uh, and of course, your final game. And uh, from reading, I, I, I think I found a video or two as well, and, and I watched your 1,000s uh, game. I forget where you were. You got a standing ovation. Was it, was it back home in Montreal, Montreal, back in Quebec? Yeah. yeah. What was that? Because like you said, um, when the refs, we have talked to, you know, they say for a ref, there is no home game. It's an away game every game. Yeah. And we all know, you know, everybody gets on the refs, but in this case, Hey, the hockey fans, when you've had a, such a great achievement, you're going to get the recognition. So what, uh, tell us a little bit about that from your side.
2: That was pretty special. I had, obviously, my three kids, my wife, uh, a lot of my wife's family, and my parents were all at the game. And for your 1,000th game, Montreal does things, as as do, I find, a lot of the original six teams and then some of the newer teams. But they have a long tradition of doing things right when it comes to ceremonies. And sure enough, they put the red carpet out uh, from the centre ice and... Uh, My family, my wife, my kids, my parents, all got introduced on the ice, and I presented my wife, my mother with a bouquet of flowers, Uh, Stephen Walkham, my boss, was out there with a a crystal trophy, the mark 1,000 games, and then I stood there with the three guys I worked with, the team captains came over, gave me autographed sticks, and the entire bell center gave me a standing ovation, which... You know, I'm sure you guys can appreciate, uh, at least you, James, a uh, hometown Boston kid making good in Boston. It, it was it was yep. pretty emotional uh, standing out there on the ice, seeing these people cheer for me, which yeah, one of the few times in my career, that in my final game. And my final game, I'm not sure if they were cheering because they were celebrating or happy I was leaving. I'm not sure, but uh, it, it was pretty neat. But once again, it goes back to family. Uh, my wife and my parents, my dad, you know, a long time, Montreal Canadiens fan and to be able to stand on the ice, that's something that you can get a seat as close to the ice ice as you want, but just to actually stand at center ice and look around 360 degrees and see the fans all on their feet cheering. It's um, it brings tears to your eyes. It it really does. And it it did for me. What about the last game? Last game was special as well. And I also did a 1500th game in there. I, I did that in Denver. Uh, no ceremony, but they did acknowledge me on the board. And the ABS gave me an autographed stick, and Anaheim gave me a, a number eight Ducks jersey with my name on it, and all the team signed it. Uh, I had a massive party after that game. In fact, it was a weekend event, uh, house parties, family from out of town. My final game is in L.A. I chose to do a final game in L.A. My wife is from L.A. and at one time in college, uh, she worked for the Kings. So it was sort of a bittersweet homecoming for her as well. Uh, same thing. There's no ceremony. They put me up on the jumbotron for about 60 seconds during the first period. Let them just let the crowd know that it was my final game. They sort of read my stats out. Then they panned the camera to my family sitting 10 rows up from the ice, put the spotlight on them, let them wave. And when the game ended, uh, I went to skate off the ice and both teams got in line and shook my hand. Uh, wouldn't let me leave the ice. Every, every player on both teams. And then when I thought I was done, uh, one of the linesmen said to me, look, the coaches are waiting for him. I back over to both benches, uh, Rick Tocchet and his staff and um, John Stevens, and his staff uh, shook hands with all of them, uh, went into the room. The Kings were great. Uh, Luke Robitaille, Rob Blake presented me with a, uh, King's jersey number eight, my name on it, signed by the team, um, an engraved bottle of wine with my stats on the on the wine bottle. Uh, it was just it was just a real nice night, and uh, even though it was a milestone game for me, there was no party. It was a bittersweet night. So uh, I had a suite at my hotel, and there was guys I worked with, my family, and two friends. There's about eight of us, and stood up, I stayed up telling stories till about four in the morning, and that was it. I was done.
0: So over the course of 80 NHL playoff games, I've got, I've got to ask, what was your favorite playoff series or was there a memorable playoff game that you had to officiate?
2: Obviously, yeah. Oddly enough, and it's just a coincidence, my first ever playoff game was uh, Boston Bruins against Carolina Hurricanes. uh, First year of the Hurricanes when they were playing down in uh, Greensboro in the old, uh, before they had their new rink built in Raleigh. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was my first playoff game. Pat Burns was coaching. Um, I'm trying to think what year that would have been, maybe year 2000. And you think you're ready for a playoff game. You've done, you know, at that point, I'd done a bunch of years in the NHL as a one, one referee. Um, only 11 guys got playoffs. So I, I never had a playoff game as a one man system, but I did a lot of standby games and a standby, you're right down by the glass. And as you guys know, a playoff game, just the intensity wraps up, you know, to the nth degree. So when I finally got my first playoff game, I figured, well, I was ready for it. I knew what to expect, and I was so wrong. The, the speed seemed even 10 times faster. Being on the other side of the glass, it, was, it went by in a blur. I don't remember much about the game. But it was, um, it was eye-opening, and it was spectacular. That's all I can say. And then probably the most other memorable playoff game was my first ever Game 7. And that occurred in Boston versus Carolina. And unfortunately for the Bruins, uh, Carolina won in overtime. Scotty Walker uh, scored. That would have been around 2014, possibly. But um, to be selected to do a game seven is a pretty big honor, especially when there's not a lot of series going to games. That just means that's just a reward for how well you've worked in the previous games in that round. So those are probably the two most memorable playoff games. Um, yeah.
1: So, a couple behind the scenes fan questions here. Um, so, does, you know, you're, you're a guest and you're officiating. I'm sure you receive feedback. When you receive that, do they leave you alone during the game? Or if, if say, say, you miss something, it's pretty big, um, they're not going to come in between periods and say, hey, look, do they wait till after? Do they say anything? Do you get a report card? <laughs>
2: Yeah, uh, that's, that's, so that's something that I, I see that on Twitter a lot, that the officials are not accountable. Well, they couldn't be further from the truth. Um, every game is on in Toronto. Toronto is where the situation room is. And each game has a dedicated person watching that game. And that person writes down every penalty call you make, every penalty call in his opinion that you should have made and didn't, and anything else that happens in the game whether it's a disputed call at the net, a disallowed goal, and they all get clipped and sent to the official after the game. So the official can pull that up on his laptop, go to uh, penalty calls he made, uh, calls that possibly were missed. They can, they can access all of that at the click of a button. But probably the most immediate feedback is the on, on-site supervisor. And at the NHL level, there's about six or seven of them who randomly – Travel around the way the officials do. Um, you're usually aware that they're there and they come down after the game and they give you immediate feedback. And they're not there to nitpick or point out your mistakes. They're there to teach. They're there to teach, mentor, um, and build your confidence. I mean, if you're doing a good job, I mean you want them to tell you that you're doing a good job because you run on that confidence, you run on that momentum. But if you've missed a call, if there's a if there's a Glaring call, it's the elephant in the room, they they can't ignore that. And they go over it. And if it's an honest mistake, they go over it. If they think you're not working hard, if you're dogging it, well, then they might come down and there might be some stern, harsh words. Uh, But as far as coming down between periods, it'd have to be something really out of the ordinary for that to happen. And it's usually left till after the game. What they do do sometimes is let's say you have a controversial call that you make. And it's the right call, whether it's a non-call or a call, but the team is just going nuts over it. They might call the room from the press box between periods and say, Hey, just to let you guys know you made the right call there. Like don't second guess yourself. Don't let the team because a lot of teams, I mean, you know, the old what's the old line? If you're not cheating, you're not trying. Yeah. So a lot of teams, even if the call is right, they'll still try and get inside your head and say, Hey, you owe us one, you know, you missed that big call or you you called that phantom penalty. And you, as hard as you try to get that out of your mind, it's still, it's still pressure that they're putting on you. So it's nice to have a, a neutral voice call you down and say, hey, that call you guys made, that was bang on. Don't let them get in your head.
1: Wow, that's good. So with video review now, um, do you, did you like it? Do you like it? And do you think other referees like it? It kind of seems like you want to get it right. This is one way to get it right. From the fans perspective yeah if we're going to have a coach's challenge for every little offside it takes away from the game but it's kind of like you know i guess if you're a ref and and there's a coach's challenge you know maybe you know whatever If the linesman is kind of like the linesman are they vindicated if it comes back you know
2: it was the right call <laughs> you know what i mean it's like oh, absolutely uh, guys resisted it at first, not that we had a choice or a, a voice in resisting it, but just, we felt kind of like, wow, now we're going to get second guessed and we're going to, they are going to show the calls wrong and we're going to be overturned. But then guys started buying into it going, Hey, we were the only guy in the world that didn't see that puck cross the goal line. The team saw it. They had video, the fans in the building saw it in the jumbotron everybody at home saw it. And I was the only guy who didn't see it. And I'm going to say it's no goal. I it, it, it mean, that's not fair to the game. Yeah. So the same goes with an offside. You never want to miss an offside. But if you ask a linesman, would you rather not have the video review, be wrong, miss the offside, and the team loses? Or would you rather be wrong and have it fixed immediately? And they're going to, they're good. They will, you know, to a man, will tell you the video review is great because it rectifies errors. And nobody wants to make an error. And if you make a mistake, your supervisors and your bosses are still going to watch that videotape. And you're still going to get credited with missing a call. But what did that miss call, like what did it, how did it affect the game? Right, right. Well, back in the day, it could affect the game tremendously. Now it doesn't have as big an effect as the game. So, I mean, if you're wrong, you're wrong. There's no changing that. And they're going to, the lack of a video replay is not, going to, is not going to prevent you from being wrong. But it'll rectify the times you are wrong and make the result a lot easier to swallow. So I believe, I mean, I would have loved to have had it my whole career. I mean, guys will call a you call a major penalty now. And you want to be right. But hey, let's take a look at it now. It's a five-minute power play. That, 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 that That's a game changer. So Call a five-minute major, you get to look at it. And it does two things. If you were out to lunch and missed it, you're going to make it right. And if you look at it and go, it's exactly what I saw. It just builds your own confidence. You go, yeah, it's exactly what I saw. And it's staying a five minute major. So I think it's good for the game.
1: So uh, Dave, the one good thing about uh, Andrew and I having this podcast, and we get to have on a lot of former players, a lot of NHL players too. So, um, you know, not with everyone, but you become friends with some of them. So uh, uh, I texted one former NHL player, and this would have been from late 80s through the about the mid 90s. And I said, hey, uh, give me a good question. What what would you want me to ask, uh, you know, Dave here? And he just said, yeah, he says, I'd be curious to know, from his perspective, not uh, from the re- officiating, but also from watching the game, what are the changes you've seen over time? I know we've talked about you know, when, when you started, it was freezing the puck, right? Freezing the puck, you blow the whistle, then everybody's got to play. And then we talked about the clutching and grabbing and you can't hold uh-huh. and you can't, you know, and now it's uh, what it's cross-checking this year. And before that, it was, if you touch the hand, it's a slash, right? Yep. So what are some changes there, but also he wants to know what were the changes you've seen as far as hockey players from the early nineties through to when you retired?
2: Well, as far as hockey players go, everybody's so skilled now. There's there's no room on that fourth line for a guy that's going to sit there as a gladiator and come out and fight. You just the game is too fast for that. They they just you need a player who is who is highly skilled and tough. If you want to have that kind of deterrent on your team, that guy better be able to play the game. He better be able to skate and keep up with the, whoever he's trying to catch. You, you can't you can't just have a A fourth liner who's there to do one job and not contribute offensively and defensively. I mean, that's the biggest thing. You don't have those so-called gladiators that we used to have back in the game. Uh, Players are faster. They shoot harder. I mean, that's a function of their sticks they use now too. They're no more wood sticks. They're using the graphite sticks. Um, The goaltenders are bigger. I mean, the goaltenders are all six foot four now. They yeah, cover so awesome. much net. They cover so much net. I don't know how that park ever goes in. Um so that's pretty much what the players uh and the hitting, and I think the hitting's a function of taking out the red line. Guys used to hit the red line going sort of slowing down, so they wouldn't be called for a two-line pass. Now they're now they're actually, you know, they're accelerating as they hit the red line. Right. And if you don't time that right, you get your head down, you're gonna get blown up. So you see a lot more big hits in the neutral zone, whereas you never used to see those big hits in the neutral zone because there just wasn't any speed through the middle. And I love that. I think it's made the game so exciting. Uh, going to three on three in overtime oh, yeah. is, you know, when overtime first came in, it was five on five and everybody just played for a tie. Nobody took a chance. Now they get a point, so go for it, right? Yeah. And three on three is just, it's so wide open and so exciting that that's one of the best things I think they've ever done for the game. And from a safety factor, the hybrid icing. Nobody wanted to go to minor hockey icing where it just crosses the goal line; it's automatic whistle. Because that's frustrating, especially if the attacking player is close to it. But as a referee, the play that would make me cringe, game in and game out, was that race for the puck. And you're saying to yourself, don't finish him. Like, don't finish him. Don't finish him. Because if he does, there's going to be an injury or there's going to be a fight. And as the referee... You, you never wanted to see that. And now there's still the race for the puck. There's still the advantage gained. If you're the attacking player, it's going to be an advance. But when they blow that whistle, when the players are at the face off dot, everybody wins in my opinion. I mean, I can't tell you now and times I joke with defensemen on those, a small defenseman with a big forward chasing him in and the whistle goes for icing and I'd swing by behind the net. So sort to of skate with the guy, go, don't you love that hybrid rule? And they just wink at me and go, I love it, man. <laughs> <God> as, <mess. laughs> I'm tired of getting my face run through the glass at the end. Yeah, you know, so, I mean, I think that's one of the best rules I've ever come up with. Awesome.
1: So, a uh, couple couple questions here. These may sound uh, a little bit dumb, but uh, th- we're dumb fans. And so, <laughs> we're, we're, we get to ask this, let alone if you are being interviewed, like, by a radio station. Right. Sure. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, we have- so, so,
1: so. Um, the chirping going on. It seems like the culture in hockey is, you know, uh, the the official gets more chirping back from the players than any other sport. However, when you've had enough, you've had enough. Is it really chirping uh, or is it is it a little bit of show? Is it just, you know, like everybody's got to drink and spit? Is it just habit? And it, one thing is uh, I remember old Don Cherry saying the story of he would feel he would have to get onto a ref, even though it was the right call. Yeah. And he, he tells the story of calling a ref over and he's screaming at him. But what he's screaming is, look, you look at me and I got nothing to say to you, but I got to say this because the manager is up there. And, and you just <laughs> yeah. nod your head and look at me yeah. and you just tell me to give it, you know, is that a real thing or is that just,
2: it, you know. It is. It, it, does, it doesn't happen a whole lot. Uh, <laughs> I did a game in the American League once, Rick Bonus, who was coaching, yeah. uh, he was coaching Maine, I believe. And uh, team lost badly the night before. And two minutes into the into the game, uh, the other team got a breakaway, and his player tripped the other team. I put my hand up, and I called the tripping penalty. It should, it could. I mean, in today's game, it would have been a penalty shot. We didn't call penalty shots as often back in the '80s. And uh, I called the two-minute tripping minor on his player, and he went ballistic. He's up on the bench, yelling at me, screaming. He slams the door. I, I'm saying to myself. What could he possibly have seen there? I mean, he's getting a break here, yet he's losing his mind. Yeah. So I skate over to the bench, and he can tell the way I'm coming. I mean, I'm, I'm on a mission over the bench. And he sees that, and he runs around behind his team, gets to the door closest to where I'm coming from with his back to his team. And I start to tell him, like, listen, Rick, I'm not going to put up with this. And he starts yelling at me the same way. I tell you what, Dave, my team sucked so bad last night. They had no emotion no emotion at all. And I'm not mad at you one bit. So I'm really sorry. It won't happen again, but they've got to show some more emotion. And he slammed the door and turned his back and walked <laughs> away. And I'm, I'm less down there. Almost, almost laughing.
0: I was about to say, what's your reaction to yeah, that? So I just,
2: I just <laughs> winked at him and he got back behind the bench. And I don't know how all you guys know Rick bonus. He gave me a big wink and a big smile on his face. And that was it. He didn't yell the rest of the game, so, but people do ask about how much do we take from players and, We take way more than other sports do, but you have to understand most other sports, the abuse occurs during a stoppage. It's right there. It's it's unavoidable and it's you're not able to ignore it in hockey. A lot of the abuse happens while you're moving. It's the emotion. You can skate away. You just skate away and it's, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And you have to understand these players, they're in the heat of the moment. Heat of the moment, they've seen it one way, they're frustrated, they might have just uh, been hurt on a, on a hit or, or whatever it may be, and they're giving it to you and I'm never going to give somebody a penalty for voicing their opinion. You know, come on, wake up, that was a terrible call. And la- whether it's laced with expletives or not, they're just voicing their opinion. I can live with that and I can give it back to them. When they cross the line, it becomes personal. They use an expletive that is referring to you. It's, uh, it's an insult. They're insulting you. That's where you draw the line. So you'll see guys lose their mind, but they're not being disrespectful. They're just losing their mind. And you can usually put up with that. And the, the one I, I would use the most is I put, put my hand up like a stop sign. I go, I heard you. Right. heard you the first time. I heard you the second time. I don't want to hear it a third time. And that they usually go, okay, fair enough. and they, And they leave you alone. So... It's all about managing, managing emotions and realizing who you're dealing with. And sometimes you might take a little more than you should, but you wait for the next stoppage. You go over and you tell the guy in a very calm voice the way, the way a parent would. He's like, I expect more from you. I gave you a break there because I respect you, but don't push me a second time because you're not going to get that break. And they'll usually come over to you and go, hey, I'm sorry, Jax. Lost my head, lost my cool. Won't happen again. And that's, I think that's the way you need to diffuse things.
1: Yeah. And, you know, so I having the mic'd up, you know, for the fans, you know, you see the YouTube clips or the NHL clips and it seems like, you know, I mean, there's a lot of communication going on out there from officials and players and many times you're warning them, Hey, I knock it off. You know, you're doing whatever I'm going to call the penalty. And it just seems like, there's like uh, almost almost like uh, Andrew was when he was in middle school. You know, <laughs> it's like uh, yeah. don't do it. He does it. It's like okay. Yeah. I mean, I, how many times do I got to tell you not to do it? Or yeah, yeah. What um, um, what's going on in, in your head when? And again, it's easy when you're eating potato chips on the couch to being in the game. You have to make a call, and I'm assuming you when you make a call, it has to be within a second or two, the most.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, how do you get to be that good? Where you're putting yourself in a place that you can see what you need to see, and making a call. I mean, sometimes I'm just like, man, that's, I mean, I mean that that's interference right there. And is it? I don't know. And I'm I'm ten seconds in, sitting on the couch, going, yeah, that is it is interference. And you've already had to make that call.
2: It's already done. Yeah, sure. And you know, obviously, officials miss calls. and miss calls all night long. I missed hundreds of calls. I mean. Game to game, you miss calls. And it's all, it's all about sight lines. From where you're standing, it doesn't look like a penalty. And you see a video of it, and you go, oh, holy crap. Like that, that was definitely a penalty. And in a case like that, I, I, I will go tell a player. I go, listen, from where I was standing, that wasn't a penalty. But I saw it on the jumbotron. I went back to the goal line, and you probably have a point. You probably have a point. So listen, I'm not going to do a makeup call, but i tell you what. I'm going to be better. And they'll usually accept that, that from you. But I just think it's about repetitions. What's that uh, thing they talk about? You need to do something 10,000 times before you get good at it. I've been calling penalties since I was 14 years old. You learn to put yourself in a good sight line, which, which you talk about uh, repetitions. I've seen really good hockey players try to referee a hockey game, whether it's just a men's league or something, and they're short of referee. I used to play in a men's league where we didn't have referees per se. We had guys that were playing in the game before or after. Would come out and referee, just take turns doing it. And guys that were much better hockey players than I ever was are standing where they shouldn't be and constantly getting hit with pucks. And that's that's the question I get the most. How do you guys not get hit with the puck every shift? Yeah. And it's all about knowing where to be. It's just it becomes second nature to you. And now when a guy gets hit with the puck, it's usually the player's fault for the most part. It's occasionally we are not in the right spot, but We've done it so long that we know if we're standing on a certain spot, we're giving him two options. He can go off the boards of the hash mark or he can rim it around behind us. But if he hits me when I'm standing where I'm supposed to be standing, that was a bad play because if it doesn't hit me, it hits the boards and goes into the slot. And I don't think that's what he wanted to do. So it's usually a player panicking when you get hit with the puck. But going back to your question, J it's just becomes second nature. You you focus on where you need to look. You see a play developing and you say, I need to focus there and I need to see the play. I can't just see the result, I need to see how it develops. So you mm-hmm. talk about interference, if you cut a video, say uh, two seconds, and you see where the puck is, and you see where the contact is, you go, it's interference. But if I see that play develop, it's not always an interference call. It's sometimes the player is just taking away his ice and making the player take a wider route to that puck. It might look like interference in a small snip, but when you see the entire play, say, no, the guy did a good job, he kept his feet moving. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, I missed the days when you guys, uh, to get out of the way, you would, uh, climb up on the, uh, the old, uh,
2: shelf on the boards. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now well, you, you can, re- you can think- reach the glass too. The glass was only six feet high. Yeah. Yeah, you can jump and grab just, the glass yeah. and pull yourself up. Now it's <laughs> the glass is 12, 14 feet. You're done.
1: So before we, before we wrap up here, a couple of uh, fun things I, I want to ask. And, uh, Andrew, if you get follow-ups, jump in here. I've I've uh, I, I told Andrew to hit more of the career stuff and I was going to hit some of the, the funner stuff. So Andrew got the tough job. Um, with all the chirping that goes on, what's the, and you don't have to name the player. What's the funniest thing that you've heard that you just like, I, I can't believe they're saying this in a hockey game, Me- meaning the players, the players to players.
2: Yeah. Uh, most of the stuff I, I can't repeat. Uh, that would be, you have to go for a beer and I'll tell you about it then. Um, yeah. Just in generalities, uh, a lot of as as the salaries improved from the nineties to the two thousands, salaries improved. A lot of times, it's guys comparing, "Hey, you only make you only make minimum salary or whatever. Go sit down or, or something like that." Um, I remember doing a game between Pittsburgh and uh, Philadelphia in Pittsburgh at the old Igloo. and yeah. uh, at the time I was wearing a um, a Mission helmet uh, or maybe it was an iTech helmet uh my buddy owned iTech and we didn't have a uh we didn't have a commercial agreement with anyone we didn't get any uh money for wearing equipment or anything but he said hey you guys are all wearing CCMs or or Cooper helmets he goes why don't you put on an iTech helmet and uh, I'll give your kids some free hockey equipment I say, great great deal right (laughs) and uh it wasn't the greatest looking helmet it got better but uh Anyways, I'm between the benches and they're just going at each other. Mike Stuthers was the assistant coach for uh, Philadelphia at the time. And these two players are going to each other on the bench and they're just going. And then it devolves into how much money each guy makes or something like that. And one of the players accused the other guy, he goes, yeah, you only make 400000 a year. He goes, you know, you don't even belong in this. And I just started to laugh and I just, I, I'm not sure why, but just, just out read a lot. I go, 400000 a year. I go, high tech pays more not to wear this helmet. <laughs> 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 and everybody started to laugh and it just it diffused it right then and there and, and I had a guy come up to me later in the game he goes hey Jackson were you serious are you really getting 400000 for wearing that helmet <laughs> <laughs> I liked that and I said no I said I get a, a couple of pairs of shin pads and some hockey pads for my kids that's about it but well, that's um, funny. yeah as far as uh, funny lines uh, going back to the Boston Bruin days remember Peter Duris played for yeah. the Bruins he was a centerman and yeah. they had a they had a uh, really young Czechoslovakian rookie who came in, uh Rizika, Rosie Rizika. Was yeah, the Rosie name?
1: Rizika, yeah. yeah.
2: Good hockey player. And uh, I was doing his, I think it was his very first game in Boston Garden. The old, you know, small that place was. And he came across the blue line. Rizika came across the blue line and he let a shot go. The goalie never even moved on. Like I still don't think the goalie has seen the puck yet. And it went bar okay. down in the net. It was just, it was a phenomenal shot. So, we change lines, get the center ice. Peter Douris is taking the face off for Boston, and I turned to Peter and I said, "Wow!" I go, "What a shot!" He goes, "Incredible!" So I just joking. I said, "It kind of reminds me of me when I was younger, Peter." And <laughs> without missing a beat, he looked at me. He goes, "Oh, I didn't know you were a goaltender." Oh, <laughs> yeah, it was just you know, quick wit yeah. like that. But uh, yeah, a lot of the chirping is just you just try and get under guys' skin and. Most of it's PG-rated, R-rated. Uh,
1: yeah.
2: yeah. And I mean, things have changed a lot, too. The When I started, you could say anything you wanted, right. pretty much, as long as it wasn't directed at me. And now a lot of stuff that's not acceptable anymore. And it's just right. society, the way it's evolved. Yeah, um, right. You know, uh, yeah, you just have to... If you hear it, you have to call it. And yeah. there's guys that get thrown out of games for going over the line and stuff that's just not acceptable. I mean you think about it. I mean, it's like an office. It's a workspace, and there's things that are below the line and you can't tolerate.
0: So do you think guys like uh, Marchant who, you know, made the comment to Panarin about him not being liked in Russia or something, do you think those types of comments will especially be gone from the chirping?
2: Because I just can't imagine that really being said. No, I, I think things like that. I think things like that will always be in the game. Okay. And they, they probably should be because – how else do you get underneath the guy's skin? I mean, right. I, I love Brad Marchand. I really do. I mean, did he make games tougher for me when I was in the game? <laughs> of course. And that's his job. He's, he's an agitator, but he's an incredibly skilled hockey player. I mean, my God, the guy has hands like, you know, like any of the best players in the league. So he's kind of a double threat. He yeah. plays the game the way an all-star plays it. And he's an all-star agitator as well. He gets under yeah. guy's skin and, uh, you know, if I was a GM, I'd have them on, uh, on my team because that's how you win. Did you ever – uh, Go what ahead, is the
1: best? What is the best, most electric crowd you witnessed? And what's been the most hostile crowd to you as an official?
2: Uh, oddly enough, the most hostile crowd I ever refereed in was in Salt Lake City in the minors. <laughs> and I'm not sure why. But I've <laughs> talked to other people in other sports, and they say the same thing. Um, Philadelphia really? was a tough Philadelphia was a tough crowd especially back in the day in the spectrum when they were right on top of you uh, very steep sight lines um, yeah they didn't they didn't make you feel very welcome uh, the most elected crowds I'm gonna say tough to beat Montreal on a Saturday night
0: yeah
2: when that building's rocking uh, Boston Garden was great uh, even even the the new Boston garden is pretty good when the team's winning especially in a playoff game Madison Square Garden one of my favorite Um, And oddly enough, San Jose, although I know they're struggling right now, attendance wise, but for the bulk of my career for a non-traditional hockey city, they were amazing. They up on their feet, every whistle, every power play. It was just, it was nice to see. I think that really helped that team achieve a measure of success. Just having the fans they had behind them.
1: Awesome. Dave, I know we're running over here, so I want to wrap up, but um, I do want to mention, so you're you're still working with a lot of officials uh everybody can catch you uh with the, on the espn as an analyst which i think is great because um, you know you're 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 giving the fans that might not be hockey fans some knowledge but you're also giving some real insight to hockey fans about why things are should be a call why that's not a non-call you know all those things yeah so how is the new gig going and you know, what else is going on? You said you're kind of mentoring in the AHL.
2: I'm not doing that anymore. I, I was, uh, sort of furloughed because of COVID and yep. then I was, uh, welcomed back for this season, but then the ESPN gig came up and I couldn't do both. Uh, a it would be a conflict of interest. Um, I have to be neutral. Um, I can't be working for the league and criticizing their officials when, when you need to criticize someone. Um, But it's great, but it's a work in progress. I've never done television. I've done a lot of this format where I can sort of speak as long as I want to speak until you guys decide to cut me off. Whereas on TV, you're looking at 15, 30 second hits. And I have, I had to really get better at getting my point across in short bursts because I would start talking in a roundabout way to explain what I wanted to say. And then I was out of time. There'd be a goal scored and the announcer would just have to cut me off and start talking. So I'm really working on getting better and being more concise, saying what has to be said in under 30 seconds. And that's the biggest challenge for me right now. Uh, I guess the other challenge is I've never been on Twitter till this year. And I try and pick my spots when it comes to um, explaining a rule, trying to explain something. And there's just hockey fans out there on Twitter who, for whatever reason, seem to think that I still referee and I, I need to get better. <laughs> I need to get better and stop, you know, stop making bad calls. Uh, and or I like I haven't played, so man, <laughs> the officials don't care or the officials um, want one team to win or they're being told to let a certain team win. And I think what we've covered this last hour, it couldn't be further from the truth. When when a call is made that affects the game and it turns out to be the wrong call, I can guarantee you nobody sleeps worse than the referee who made that call. It's not a matter of laughing it off and going, going, having a beer. It's, it's something that stays with you. And I talk to these guys every now and then. And that's the toughest part about being a referee and not making the right call is you're on an Island, man. Like you're just out there by yourself and everybody's mad at you and you second guess yourself. So these guys go out night in night out with no other goal than to be perfect and you sell them are perfect. It's like golf. You play a good game, but there's still shots you want back. And that's how it is as a referee. You go out there and you try and be perfect every single night. And it doesn't always go that way, but the thought that they don't care, or they're, they have an agenda, one team to win or try and keep the game even that could not be further from the truth.
1: Yeah. And I, and I hear a lot, you know, I heard it when I, when I, played hockey way, way back in the day. You hear it now that they keep saying, well, you know, we can live with what the officials are doing as long as they're consistent. But what happens if you've got a rep that consistently sucks?
2: That's a good point.
1: You know, and so isn't it, shouldn't it be about, you know, like you said, getting better uh, each time, looking at it, trying to get better rather than just have, you know, I mean, I'm sure you guys have that standard, you try to meet it, but I'm talking about if you're consistently low,
2: Nobody wants that, right? No. And, and, and that's something that I've started saying on television is like, we always used to talk about we want consistency from the officials. Well, if I go out there and call them nothing, I'm consistent. That, that doesn't mean I'm doing my job, though. No. So we've moved on from being consistent to being true to the standard. And there's a standard, and we all know what that standard is. The, the NHL, Stephen Walkham, drums that into them week after week after week. Those officials get videos twice a week, calls of the week, goaltender interference calls of the week. There's no official on staff who can say, I'm not aware of what the league wants me to call. So they need to call that standard. And if they call that standard consistently, then we're we're good. If they don't call that standard consistently, then they might be out of a job. And they're not in the habit of firing officials, but it does happen. It does happen. And what fans need to remember sometimes is they there'll be certain referees, they go, this guy's awful. But they don't see him work the other 75 games where he was probably great. They just see the one game against their own team, they see it with blinders on, and they assume this guy's awful. And then if it happens a second, God forbid, it happens a second time with their team, now this guy is, he's out to get them. He's out to get them, and that's that just informs their whole decision, and they're, you know, they think this guy is the worst referee ever, but if they were able to turn the TV on one night and see him doing two West Coast teams that they have no vested interest in who wins, they might have to agree the guy did a pretty good job, and that's why the team of supervisors gets together twice a year. They get together mid midseason, and they get together right before the playoffs, and there's guys that don't get playoff games. Some of that's a function of just being young inexperienced. All things being equal, you're going to take the more experienced official. But there's other guys who've been in playoffs and all of a sudden they're not in playoffs and that's that's a function of the type of season they've had. No different than a first-line center who gets, he's not scoring, he gets moved down to the second line. And that's where the accountability does come in. And the league doesn't tolerate subpar officiating even though there are calls and there are games where I'm sure there is subpar officiating. But It's not a night-in, night-out thing. They're isolated incidents, and nobody ever gives credit to all the great calls that are made. You you see a a major penalty called or something, and everybody goes, oh, yeah, that was a major penalty. Well, yeah, it was, but it could have been missed, and it wasn't. The right right call was made, and these guys are right far more than they're ever ever wrong. So I know it was a long-winded answer, but.
1: No, it's it is a great answer. And and that's I, I think most fans know that, but when it comes, like you say, to their team, they just suddenly throw it out. And you know, refs are the scapegoats, but you're not. Uh, you know, and you wish it uh, you wish it wasn't that way. But I guess you guys know that going in that, you know, I mean, I'd be like, here we go, guys, we're gonna do our warm-ups. We're gonna skate out first, we're gonna skate really fast and <laughs> listen how many people boo us. You ready? Let's go.
2: <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, but, I won't. Um, I won't disagree that there's times where a period doesn't go quite like you want it to go. And a lot of that's times it's self-inflicted, you know, you've missed a call, you made a call, you shouldn't. And then instead of skating it with three minutes to go, you might get it with men and a half to go. Cause by that time the team's on the ice. So they're, they're sort of torn between do they boo the referees or cheer their home team as they hit the ice. <laughs> so, you know, I can't say that's never been done. So
1: uh, j- just to finish up, if you had to pick one, what would be your favorite hockey memory in your career?
2: Oh, I've got too many to pick one, but uh, it, would, it would either be my final game just because I had everybody I wanted around me or either of the two all-star games to see how happy my family was. Those, those—you sacri- I said it earlier, you sacrificed so much in your career you miss so much, you're away so much that to be able to have your family around you doing something you enjoy, that's probably the games that stick out the most.
1: Well, Dave, we can't thank you enough. I know that we're over. We're super appreciative of your time and uh, we'll say goodbye off here, but officially we can't thank you enough. Uh, you know, we've, we've enjoyed all of uh, all the officiating that you and the others have done. Uh, and uh, we know it's a tough job and Every time we go to our games, we always cheer on the refs because everybody else boos them. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we you know, I, I wouldn't want that job. I know it's a difficult job. So, uh, you know, it, it's part of the game, man. And you're part of the game. So we, we thank you so much. And we wish you well on uh, ESPN, too.
2: Yeah, thank you. Oh, thank you very much. No, it's, been a, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you.
1: And Andrew, go ahead and pause. All right. Dave Jackson,
0: NHL official man. first one.
1: Man, I tell you, um, I know that we've been trying to uh, get an NHL uh, head official, and I think we might have another one coming on our podcast. Uh, but boy, I love getting their, uh, you know, take on the game, and and you know, let's face it, what they do, we all know it's a tough job, and you know, they're scapegoats when things don't go bad. Everybody, you know, and they do make mistakes, but boy, what I mean, they have to make a call just like that. And Dave's had a career since he was 14 of being an official what do you think Andrew
0: yeah no it's crazy and uh, that's a long career man that is a long time of officiating being on the ice so good for him it's so good that he's involved um, I know he's not doing the training thing in the AHL anymore but still staying in the officiating realm with uh, as an analysis with ESPN I think it's awesome man and if you haven't heard Dave on ESPN you know I know he says He's not the greatest uh, talker, but man, he's got he's got a wealth of knowledge, and you wouldn't even uh, notice uh, any mess ups or anything on the air we talk. So, yeah, and and there's a lot more questions. You know, I wanted to ask him about uh, you know working with
1: Don Koharski, you know the famous uh, referee. Uh, I'd love to hear some Paul Stewart, if you know who he is, Andrew. He used to be a former player, tough guy, used to fight O'Reilly all the time, and. then went on to refereeing, but, you know, just other things, you know, like how long do you, do you wait for a too many men call, you know, re- really like specific questions. And, uh, you know, we were way over time, but uh, we'll try to have him back on and try to get him to answer questions. Yeah. He's great. He's great on ESPN. And uh, I think it's a good fit. And uh, I'm not too particular on the TSN network and the, the smaller channels covering the NHL games, but it doesn't really matter to me. I get NHL center eyes, you know?
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. You know, but
1: I hope ESPN continues to push the hockey because let's face it. Once fans understand the game, they tend to like it better other than just, Oh, it's a place where they fight. You know what I mean? Oh,
0: absolutely. Yeah. We just uh, appreciate everybody coming and joining us on this episode. I know it was a long one, so we'll wrap it up. Um, But we appreciate everybody stopping by today. So have a wonderful rest of the day. Have a good day.